0: You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So The Matrix uh, came out, man, The Matrix was a big moment in my childhood. Uh, It was like uh, one of those really... Um, kind of moments, right? Uh, the Matrix kind of changed, it didn't just change, it changed like movies, it changed the way that movies were made, it changed the way that movies were enjoyed, it was kind of this breakthrough in so many ways, like whether the action or the the stunts or the special effects or the way that they used computers in the making of movies. and the storytelling and the cinematography, all of it was not only state of the art, it was kind of advancing the state of the art, right? And, and you could see it like, there's, it's almost like there's this nexus in time and after the Matrix, movies were trying to kind of do what the Matrix did. Um, it, uh, it was taught in my Intro to Film class when I was in college, I took a Humanity and it was the Intro to Film and like, it was like a big part of it. They talked about how the, this movie was made and how spectacularly it was done. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Matrix, or for those of you who are and maybe need a refresher, uh, The Matrix uh, kind of introduces us to the character of Thomas Anderson, who's played by Keanu Reeves. Uh, he's a middle-aged computer programmer working for a massive, nameless, nondescript corporation. Right? He kind of is just this big, gray building. And we get the impression early on that Thomas is a man in search of something. He's unsatisfied. He senses the falseness of the world around him. He senses that there's kind of, he feels as though he's a cog in a wheel, or a cog in a machine that he doesn't quite understand, right? That it kind of just outside of his perception, there's some truth that he can't get at. And so uh, in that search, he kind of, um, you know, by day he's Thomas Anderson, this computer programmer, and then by night, he uh, goes by the hacker alias Neo, and he's searching online for, he doesn't know what, but some sense of truth, and it's at this point that he's uh, directed to a character named Morpheus, who is this kind of stoic, Moses-like figure, right, who offers him uh, a a chance to find what he's looking for, and this happens, this meeting happens in this really iconic scene that I wanna share with you all, so let's direct our attention to the screen and watch the scene from The Matrix. So having made this decision to follow Morpheus, uh, Neo then learns that the world he has known his whole life uh, is an elaborate deception. Uh, He learns that centuries ago the human race kind of reached its technological pinnacle and developed an artificial intelligence, an AI, right? And that this artificial intelligence gave birth to an entire race of machines that then declared war on the human race. And this war raged on for a time, and this war kind of ravaged the earth and it darkened the skies. And so the machines now not having the power source of the sun to sustain itself, discovered that it could use the bioelectricity and the body heat of of human beings to sustain themselves. And so they begin to kind of uh, enslave and entrap humans in these giant kind of electricity farms right and so uh, in order to facilitate that they create the matrix which is this computer-generated reality that kind of um, keeps people placated right they're kind of trapped in this dream world that dulls them and kind of um, uh, kind of distracts them from the, the rea- true reality now, Uh, There's a lot of theological hay to be made from this movie. And if you were like me and you were a teenager in the early 2000s and you went to a youth group, you've heard some sermons, I'm sure, about the Matrix. And uh, some of them were good. Some of them were good. Uh, the authors of The Matrix drew heavily on kind of Christian and Buddhist and Jewish ideas and iconography, and uh, there's, you know, there's a lot there, like Thomas Anderson's name, Anderson, Andros meaning man and son, so son of man is his name, right? Uh, but then he goes by the name Neo, which is an anagram of the one, right? There's this prophecy in the story that the one, kind of this Messiah figure, will come and set everybody free, and so, uh, spoiler, that's... Turns out to be Neo. Um, As we progress, we learn and meet this character called the Oracle that makes that prophecy, right? The person who guides him to Morpheus, her name is Trinity. Uh, You know, the the, the last human stronghold and kind of the home base of the resistance is called Zion. Uh, And it goes on and on and on. So it'd be really easy to kind of focus on all of the kind of Christological imagery and ideas that are in... The Matrix, but instead I kind of want to, instead of focusing on the character of Neo or any character for that matter, I kind of want to zoom out and talk about the world of The Matrix, because the way that The Matrix kind of presents us with this world beyond the world, or this kind of clash of two realities, I think really is very apropos for Christianity, not just for us today, but kind of historically as well, uh, the idea of kind of embracing this world beyond the world, of, of acknowledging that we're born into a system and that system is corrupt and, uh, and uh, kind of um, you know, stupefies us and kind of keeps us controlled. These are all themes that are very kind of germane to us. So um, I try to, when I preach, give the sermon in a sentence. So here's the sermon in a sentence. Following Jesus is a call to resist conformity to the way the world operates. It's to recognize and to resist the way that the world operates. On Wednesday nights, we've been doing this Bible study. We've been doing it for probably over a year now. Maybe, it might be like two years. Uh, This calendar year, we've done something a little different. And whereas usually uh, in Bible studies, you kind of try to go at a slower pace, right? You'll take a book and maybe take a few weeks working through that book, or you'll do like a word study and you'll kind of look through all different ways in Scripture. We've been doing something kind of different where we've been um, taking a much broader view of Scripture where we're looking at the themes of a book each week. So starting with Genesis and then Exodus and through the books of the Bible. And what this has afforded us um, is to kind of trace longer arcs through Scripture, Right, to see how the story of God's people in this part of Scripture relates to the story of God's people in future parts. right? And so we're, we're able to kind of see the themes and see the patterns and see kind of the, um, the pathologies of those who are trying to follow God. Um, and so one of the themes that we've kind of noticed that I think I've never really quite seen in the way that we've uh, seen in Wednesday nights is the way that there's this perennial struggle that God's people faces throughout the totality of Scripture, and I think throughout the totality of, of salvation history, of church history. And that is, how do we live in the world without being conformed to the world? And you see that kind of whether it's the, whether it's the children of Israel trying to shed the practices and beliefs of their Egyptian slaveholders, or... Or whether it's in the time of judges where they're in Canaan and they're trying to not be assimilated into the, uh, you know, worship of Canaanite gods and the horrifying practices that come with it. Or whether it's the time kind of where the prophets are called to repeatedly call God's people back to right worship and right practice and away from idolatry and toward justice. Or if it's in the New Testament where kind of Paul is exhorting the church not to be conformed but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or whether it's in the book of Revelation where kind of you see this church struggling with uh, its identity as it relates to this uh, empire, kind of this bestial empire. So this this is a theme that kind of that's a pattern that's present throughout all of scripture. And so I think... it's not uh, not unreasonable for us to wrestle with this question. How do we live in a world that we recognize to be broken without partaking and participating in that brokenness? This is why Jesus kind of couched everything he did in terms of a new kingdom, right? It's not because he didn't know that there was an existing kingdom. It's because he knew exactly what that existing kingdom kind of contains and, and promotes And so everything he did was kind of inaugurating and advancing this new world, this new reality that's in conflict with the reality of the status quo, of the way that things are. Jesus is establishing a world beyond and above this broken one, right? We uh, often hear that phrase, uh, being in the world but not of the world, right? I heard that a lot when when I was younger. And it was kind of a call to, um, really, it was a call to kind of separate, right? To be set apart was kind of the language we used. And so we didn't hang out with people who weren't Christians, and we kind of didn't partake in things that Christian, people who weren't Christians partake in. And so, you know, we didn't listen to their music. We had our own music. We didn't watch their movies. We had our own movies. We didn't watch their TV. We watched our own TV. Uh, and some of it was good. Some of it was good. <laughs> But uh, this call to separate is actually kind of the opposite of what Jesus is exhorting people to do, right? He's saying this as he's sending his disciples out into the world, right? He's, he's praying this high priestly prayer. He's saying, I'm sending you. Be in the world, but not of the world. There's a tension here. There's a, um, there's a call to kind of live on a border, right? We're not called to separate from the world. We're called to be present, but we're called to be faithful. And so this struggle, you see it. You see the kind of friction between this call to be present, but not shaped by the world. Uh, Paul picks up on this idea in the reading that Donnie did, our scripture reading for today, where he talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, right? this idea that we belong to a different place, and we're here as representatives of that place, of that reality. And early Christians kind of um, saw themselves as being uh, in exile, right? Uh, Peter, in his first epistle, he opens it uh, by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles in the diaspora in Pontus, Galicia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, I don't know if I'm saying any of that right, he calls believers exiles. Now, they weren't exiles in a political sense, in a real sense. They lived where they always lived. They lived in these countries. They lived in this Roman Empire. But he called them exiles because Christians took on this understanding that where we live, the cultural context, the, the system that we have been born into is in some way <clears throat> kind of accidental. It's not our true identity. It's not our highest reality. It's not our first allegiance. Our allegiance is to our baptism, and so we live in this world <clears throat> belonging to a different world. Uh, there's a letter that, um, uh, it's called the Epistle to Diogenes, and it's a second century, it's a second century letter where it's in response to a question someone wanted to know more about these Christians who are kind of becoming so numerous and popular. Uh, not popular, they were kind of unpopular, but uh, these, these Christians that seem to be kind of popping up everywhere. And so he wrote uh, this letter, and this letter to Di- Diognetus uh, comes back describing Christians in the second century. <clears throat> and he writes, Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live out of the ordinary. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each. And they show forth the character of their citizenship in a marvelously and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs and what they wear and what they eat and in the rest of their lives. They live in respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. You see the tension he's kind of getting at there, he's, he's trying to name? They enjoy all things as citizens, and they suffer all things as foreigners. And this tension, this balancing act, I think is what we're called to live in today, Early Christians were active participants in whatever culture they found themselves in. They didn't withdraw and try to create Christian cities or nations. They understood that they were called to belong within without belonging to. To assimilate, but not to conform. I think the challenge that they faced is no different today because we're born into a context. We're born into a system. And the system that we're born into is the system as it's ever been. That system kind of feeds on people, much like the matrix kind of uses people as resources, right? Like the, the machines use humans to kind of sustain itself in the way that the, kind of, the system exists to guarantee the system's future existence, right? It's kind of the self-perpetuating, it's not, it doesn't do anything, it just kind of exists to exist. Uh, This is a quote uh, from one of of my favorite uh, preachers. Probably there's not been a sermon that I haven't borrowed from him, if not straight up stole from him. Uh, His name's Brian Zahn. He writes in his book, Postcards from Babylon, uh, Babylon kind of being this New Testament reference to whatever cultural or kind of empirical power you live under, right? Uh, That epistle from 1 Peter where he writes to the exiles, he, uh, at the end, says... She who is in Babylon sends her greetings. Well, Babylon didn't exist anymore. Ba- I mean, what was Peter talking about? And who's this mysterious she? This is kind of a cryptic statement that she, being the church in Babylon, which is Rome, sends greetings. And so Babylon kind of becomes this emblematic power like the Matrix, right? We might, we might say the Matrix and Babylon kind of are, are parallel analogies. So this is Brian Zahn talking about us trying to live within this tension that the early church did. And he says, We from our very birth have been formed by the dominant script that Walter Brueggemann identifies as technological therapeutic military consumerism. There's a mouthful. Christians are tho- But Christians are those who have embraced the subversive counterscript of the cross. Once we untether Jesus from the interests of empire we begin to see just how countercultural and radical Jesus' ideas are. Enemies? Love them. Violence? Renounce it. Money? Share it. Foreigners? Welcome them. Sinners? Forgive them. These are the kind of radical ideas that will always be opposed by the principalities and powers. It will always be opposed by the matrix will always be imposed, uh, opposed by the status quo, but which the followers of Jesus are called to embrace, announce, and enact. The degree to which the church is faithful to Jesus and his radical ideas is the degree to which the church embodies a faith that is truly countercultural. There's a reason Jesus calls this the narrow way. right? Jesus says, Uh, Narrow is the way that leads to life, and wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many fall by it. It's hard. It's hard to be faithful in a context where there's competing allegiances that we're drawn to. There's competing ideologies. There's, There's a rival baptism that we've all been kind of born into. We've been born into a worldview that's equal parts affluence, dominance, consumerism, and diversion, and much like the human race in The Matrix, we're kind of unaware of it, right? We're asleep to it. Uh, this is why I like the church calendar. Um, one of the things that the church calendar does is give us a different rhythm to live our lives by, right? So, like, the, the, the calendar that... Uh, you know, that our context here in America that we live by is this very kind of consumeristic calendar, right? You have New Year's Day, and then pretty much every five weeks after that, there's some kind of holiday. Like, it's really kind of, like, every five weeks, it really does work out that way. Five or six. Uh, So you have New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's Day, right? New Year. Uh, And then six weeks later, you have Valentine's Day, right? And then more or less six weeks after that, you have what? St. Patrick's Day. You have, um, uh, huh? Spring break. Spring break yeah. Uh, you have. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have Easter coming up after that, right? Which has been thoroughly kind of uh, assimilated into the consumer calendar. Uh, then you have uh, what happens in what month are we on? Mother's Day. Yeah. And then dads and grads. Right. You got Father's Day. Right. You got graduation. Uh, you've got after that. Fourth of July, you've got after that, back to school and Labor Day's in there somewhere. I don't know. Uh, and so, like, kind of there's this, there's this rhythm to it, right? And that rhythm really has kind of lent itself to uh, kind of drive the market, right? We're buying Hallmark cards. We're buying presents. We're buying chocolate bunnies. We're buying, um, you know, uh, gift cards and all these different things, right? And that, that kind of rhythm really dominates our life. And the church calendar, among the many things it does, I think really kind of breaks lockstep with that. The rhythm we live our life by is not the same as the rhythm that the world around us lives its life by. There's one more character from The Matrix um, that I want to talk about. And the character's name is Cypher. He's one of Morpheus' crew on this ship. He's one of the the resistance fighters. Uh, And he... Uh, kind of is portrayed as this per, a person who is kind of um, faithless, right? He doesn't believe like everyone believes in this prophecy of, in the one, and he um, is really unsatisfied with his lot in life, right? He 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 hates living on the ship, and he hates he hates eating the rations, and he hates um, the life that he's kind of arrived to, and so he kind of betrays the team. He kind of betrays really the human race, and uh, in exchange for that betrayal, he's offered to go back into the matrix, because back into the matrix, he's able to live this life of comfort and, and luxury and pleasure, and it's just easier, right? He says ignorance is bliss. Like Even though he knows it's not real, even though he knows it's actually destroying him, he chooses it. Why it is the path that leads to destruction, and many fall by it. There's a, um, yeah, there's a, there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 20 where, uh, I, I, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, King Hezekiah, it greets these envoys from Babylon, right? This is back when Babylon actually was a thing. <laughs> and... He, he shows them his kingdom, right? He shows them his treasure house, all of his silver, all of his gold, all of his spices, all of his precious oil, all of his armory, all of the kind of things that would be, you know, uh, signs of his power and affluence. And he shows them to these Bob- Babylonian envoys, and then they leave. And then Isaiah comes to him, and he says, uh, what have you done? <laughs> you know, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah says, they've come from a far country from Babylon. And Isaiah says, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah said, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show to them. In other words, Hezekiah is trying to be a player on the world stage, right? He's trying to be like Babylon. He's trying to garner favor with Babylon because that's going to make his life better. That's going to give him more affluence and influence and comfort and wealth and pleasure. And Isaiah says this, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs, slaves, in the palace of the king in Babylon. Listen to Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Why not, if there be peace and security in my days? He's saying, your sons are going to be slaves. You've lost future generations, and Hezekiah goes, I'm cool with that, as long as I get mine, right? As long as I get to live in comfort and peace and tranquility and luxury, what do I care what happens to future generations? He's trying to do kind of what Cypher does in The Matrix, right? He doesn't care about the cost. He doesn't care about who gets hurt and broken because of his choices. He just wants his. He just wants what to do to him, what is good for him. And the matrix, the system that we're born into, that we're you know, inadvertently and unaware that we're shaped by, does this. The system will tell you that you are what you have and what you have isn't enough. Resist that. The system will tell you that you won't be safe and you can't have peace until you dominate or eliminate our enemies. Resist that. The system will convince you that your life will be so much better if it wasn't for those people, whoever that is for you. Resist that. The system will convince you that the only one you can trust is yourself and so dependency on others is weakness. Resist that. The system will tell you that the only way to get what you need is to keep someone else from getting it first. Resist that. The world will convince you that human suffering is an inevitable outcome of human progress. Resist that. We showed that clip at the beginning of the red pill and the blue pill, and you know, often we think of our lives and our decision to follow Jesus as this kind of once-and-always choice, right? We've taken the blue pill, We've followed, nope, we've taken the red pill. The red pill's a good one. We've taken the red pill. We've made the decision to follow Jesus. And so we're not too concerned with all of that, right? We're on God's side and we're not uh, on the world's side. But I think the reality is that the decisions that we make to follow Jesus happen all the time. It's a constant decision. We're always being presented with red pills and blue pills, We're always being presented with following the way that the world is set up, and we're following the way that Jesus has called us to be this life of humility and sacrifice, this cross shaped life that Jesus has called us to. That's the red pill that we're always being presented with, and it's bitter. It is, it's hard, but it leads to life it leads to the thing that we're actually wanting, right? It actually promises us the thing that, like it paradoxically gives us the life that God has for us, which is an abundant life. And the allure of the blue pill, the allure of kind of participating and perpetuating the system of the world, the way, the structures of the world that, that eat people and break people is alluring because it does promise us the things that we think we need. But it tricks us. It betrays us. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.